Uh, turn in your Bible. I believe that the, um, the bulletin says that the text is different than where we're going to be. Uh, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we're going to read in Philippians chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1 and end in verse 11, a text that uh, is hopefully familiar to some. But we're going to read it, and then uh, we're going to dig in and continue our, uh, our discussion about community. Uh, many of you read the, the weekly update. Um, I say many, not all of you, because we, we send it out to over 100 people, and only about 50% of people are opening them. So uh, you know who you are, um, and actually I do too, um, <laughs> because the software we use tells me these people opened it. Um, so maybe you haven't heard, but I found a rock this week, and it was like, listen, I, you know me, I am occasionally prone to bouts of cynicism and sarcasm. Um, and I thought this thing was so goofy. Uh, I will confess, like I was like, what is this? Like this is, okay, this thing is gonna burn itself out. But as I was walking downtown, I was going to pick up some easels so that I could uh, display something. I had contacted a friend of mine, I was downtown, I was walking, I saw this rock painted like a donut and I was like, oh! And there is something, it's like, it's this thing grabs you when you see it. There's just, there's something about it. It's cool. Uh, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a pearl in a field. Like, he's just kind of going around. I don't know what he's doing. He's working, he's walking something, and he finds this pearl, and it's, uh, a treasure, rather, and it's, it's buried in, in this field, and he goes and he sells everything that he's got, and he buys that field because of what he's found. There is, there is an acting out in my mind of the gospel in this hiding and sharing and giving and, and deciding the, the intent to supply joy and blessing to someone. Now, is this a fad? Will it burn itself out? Yes, people are not going to be doing this in five years. I, I don't think they're going to. You may be a true rock believer, and you're like, I'm going to get up and walk out of here right now because this is, this is forever, right? But listen, if we can, as a church, if we can say, look, we, we celebrate and encourage something that brings delight to people, so we're going to support that, but you realize you have a deeper need. Right? Think about that. There's an opportunity to mix with people and to say, uh, there's something deeper going on here. You can, you can find true joy, true delight in Christ. Uh, so I want to encourage you um, to, uh, to view this as an, as an opportunity to interact with people who may not know the gospel, but who are coming and excited about doing something fun and wholesome and clean and enjoyable, and that maybe not clean, there's paint involved, and kids, uh, enjoyable for their families. And think about how, how as a church can be, we be wise and be ambassadors. Um, that's all I got to say about that. I'm gonna read Philippians chapter two, uh, verse 
1 through 11, and we're going to pray and turn to God's word. The Bible says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask you to speak to us through your words. We thank you that in the clear reading of the word in the gathered assembly, or in the private reading of the word, or in the hearing of the word, whether it's over the radio station or even from the phone app that's reading it out loud. We thank you that when we hear it, we hear you speaking to us, and the Holy Spirit is, is attending to us and, and bringing your words to bear on our lives. We pray that we would not make the mistake of, of being like those that James describes, who, who they, they check themselves in the mirror, but don't adjust anything that's out of place. Instead, we pray that, that we would say, you are good and you've spoken to us. You are worthy of worship and praise. You have supplied the need that I have in Christ. You've canceled out my sins and drawn me to yourself. And I want to walk in a way that honors you. And so help us to see what it is that's out of place, what needs to be adjusted what things do we need to let go of? What do we need to add that we might walk in a way that honors you? We thank you that you sent Jesus to us and that he is the answer to our every need and every struggle and every pain. We pray that you would teach us now from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, about... Two or three months ago, I was, I was trying to communicate to my six-year-old what life is, was like before mobile phones. And, uh, and, and he was like, did you have a phone when you were a kid? And I'm like, well, yeah. Uh, but we had it, like it stayed in our house because it was everybody's phone. And there were two or three of them. And he was like, not getting that. And I was like, here's an amazing thing. There was a wire 
that connected the phone to the wall. And he's like looking at the wall and looking at my phone. He's not getting it. It's hard for us to conceive of, of what life was like back then, right? You know, if, if we haven't lived through it. So uh, if, if you are, uh, if you've always grown up with the internet and you've always grown up with mobile phones and these kinds of things, let me, let me tell you that there was a place where people like me went to learn about the universe before there was Google or the internet. Like there was a place where you could go and you could get the, the secrets of the universe unlocked for you or at least find ways like how information was distributed. And I'm not, I'm not talking about newspapers. I'm talking about the, the information or ad pages inside of comic books, right? <laughs> Do you remember these? Like you, you may not have been born on the planet Krypton and have X-ray vision, but you could secure X-ray vision for $1.50 if you would put that money in the form of a money order which I never bought a money order, by the way, until like a week ago, I had to buy a money order. Isn't that amazing to get something from the state of New Jersey? Um, you, would, you would put your money order in an envelope and also include a SAZY. Remember that? Self-addressed stamped envelope, right? And you would mail it away and then months later, not by drone delivery from Amazon, not by UPS box, but you would, you would receive a package and it would have your x-ray glasses in it. Um, there were these ads that, um, that I, I would identify with. And I know you're going to think that this is like, not you. Um, because there was a time when I was kind of a scrawny kid. And um, there were these ads that they, they were kind of like this. They were like, you're sitting on the beach with your girl and a big thug guy comes along and kicks sand in your face, right? And you're like, ah. And then like somehow this girl that you loved thought that it was then a good idea to abandon you and go with this bully. Like, how does this work? And so then you send your self stamped envelope and, uh, you know, the, the $9.99 or whatever, it was like $1.50, and you send it away and then you would receive the secrets of the universe that would teach you how to become a muscle-bound thug. And then you could go and kick sand in his face and get the girl, right? Um, I'm convinced as we look out at our society and community that many people think this is how the world works. That greater levels of power to possess strength to possess uh, ability or knowledge or any of these things, that, that the way to change the world is to assume greater power, command the information, and then force everyone to do the right thing. I think that's the way that we think the world works. That's the way the world of comic books work, right? The reason that the supervillains don't get away with anything is that Superman and Batman are going to come out of nowhere and beat them up and force everybody to do the right thing. As we look at the scriptures, though, we see a different story. Take a look with me at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 
9, we're going to look through verse 11, and we see the exaltation of Christ. You may have a narrative in your mind that Jesus was a good man who came to accomplish a good thing by preaching a good message and that bad people killed him. And had they only listened, the world would be a better place. Right? That's a bad narrative of the life of Jesus. If you sit down, and trust me, you can do this. Give yourself just a couple of hours. You can go to a, um, a website. It's called Visual Bible, right? And you can punch in what you want to read, and it'll give you a, a, a version of the Bible that's got no verse numbers. It's kind of neat. No chapters, no verse numbers, just story. Really interesting. If you sit down and you read the entire Gospel of John with an open mind and ask yourself the question, is Jesus a victim here or is he in control of the story? I guarantee you, you will see him in a masterful way move himself to his destination, which is the cross. Not a victim. We have this this idea that somehow he's a victim of the state, right? Now, Cruel and wicked men, yes, put him on the cross. But that was the plan of God, and he was obedient to it. Was he afraid in the garden? Yes. He could have run away. He could have dug a hole from that garden to the other side of the earth. He had the ability. He could have done anything that he wanted. But he brought himself to the cross to honor God the Father and to save the souls of men and women who would put their faith and trust in him. So we see Jesus in verses 9 through 11 back from the grave, and he is in a position where he is not ever going to be pushed around ever again. No one is going to take anything from him or oppress him, right? It says that he is highly exalted. Therefore, God highly exalted him. God bestowed on him a name above every name, a name that's above every name. The book of Revelation says it's it's written on his thigh. I think the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, like that just sounds like a praise song lyric, maybe, if we've spent a lot of time in church. It means something like exalted supreme leader of the entire universe, owner of everything. One theologian has said that there is not a single atom in the entire universe that the Lord Jesus cannot say, that's mine. We look back at the Great Commission. What does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? That means that every bit of permission and authority to say or do or accomplish anything is borrowed from that guy. Right? If you envision Jesus as the guy sitting on the beach, like being beat up by the bully, right? Now he's back. What's he going to be like? What's his attitude and behavior towards people going to be like? Verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2 says, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, this is a a future event, this will happen one day, but it it happens uh, in in a spiritual sense often. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. One day, 
everyone will bow the knee. Everyone has to make a decision. Will they submit themselves to Christ or will they be their own ruler? Will they run their own life? And many people, I believe, exit this life having lived for themselves only to discover that they needed to have made themselves accountable to the Lord. But one day, every knee will bow. Knees in heaven, those are all the heavenly beings, and on earth, those are the, the human creatures which God has created, and those under the earth, that's a, a symbolic way of saying the enemies of God. They will all bow the knee, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this may sound like bully-like behavior, right? If you're thinking back to those ads. But I believe that human beings, when they enter into the presence of a holy God, they understand what they have understood all their lives and have suppressed willfully. The idea that there is a right and wrong, that there is a God who exists and that he is powerful. And that one day they will have to give an account and say, this is what I did with the body that you gave me. With the life that you gave me, with the opportunities that you gave me. And there will be an accounting for it. The Bible says in the book of Romans that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. We can see this even if we say, nope, nope, not true, not not apparent to me, we suppress that truth. The Bible says his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. All human beings will have to determine who they will worship, themselves or God, in their lifetime. So consider... You probably have heard this before. You probably know this, that Jesus is king of the universe, that he is ruler, that God is angry at sin and will punish. You probably heard that. That might not be new. We know this and we expect this. So what, what then is the message that Paul is relating here? I think the message is just a little bit further back. Look at verses 6 to 8, where Paul talks about the character of Christ. He talks specifically about the, the actions of Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, but he's also talking about the character of God the Father and the intent of God the Father. Jesus will say in the Gospel of John, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Anything Jesus is doing in the Bible, by the way, is because he has seen his Father behaving this way. He says things like, I only do what I see my Father doing. So if you, if you in your, your mind, by the time we get to the end of this section, if you're like, yeah, well, that's Jesus, but is the Father like that, or does he want to destroy me? No, he, the, the Father and the Son, they have the same mind, the same intent, the same action. 
So we see in verses 6 through 8, the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. Verse 6 says that, that Jesus was in the form of God. Why does he say the form of God? Because I believe that humans tend to think of Jesus existing in the form of men, right? We think he was a real person. He was a human being. But what the writer is saying here, what Paul is saying, is that before he walked this earth, he existed in the form of God. He was God uh, incarnate. Uh, before he was incarnate, he had the being of God. He was in heaven with his Father, right? I'm not going to get into a bunch of Trinitarian stuff here. They are Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equally God, yet distinct persons, okay? So, Jesus existed in the form of God, but notice this. He did not count equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. The Greek word there is harpagmon, like that. That's a cool word. Now, let me tell you what a harpagmon is, right? Uh, one or two seasons ago, um, there was a, uh, a football game in Motor City, Packers, Detroit Lions, right? And uh, this was back in the old days when I knew nothing about football at all. Like, I was just, just kind of like, there's two teams, and they sports a whole lot. And whoever sports harder and better wins the game, right? Yeah, okay. So that's all I know. And I know that Max is like running all over the house, like excited. This is happening. This is happening. And I'm like, I don't get what's happening here. Go to bed because <laughs> it's late. But what I do know is that this play is happening and it is like 1130 at night. My son had gone to bed like an hour and a half earlier. And my wife was screaming, like screaming, like bug in the house kind of screaming. Like, like, and I'm looking at her like, I don't understand what's, what's happening. So I'm watching the replays, and here, here's what's happening. With just seconds to go in the game, Aaron Rodgers, excellent, amazing quarterback, uh, takes the ball and in a Hail Mary, no Catholic theology implied, um, throws this ball as far as he can down the field, some massive distance, 90 yards, 89.7 yards, whatever. So it, it's, it's an amazing distance, right? And he's throwing this ball and it's sailing through the air and out of the, the mob of, of players down there in the end zone jumps Richard Rodgers and he catches this ball to win the game. They call it the Motor City Miracle. Was it amazing? Yes. Well, now that I watch it now, because I, I knew nothing about football then. I knew it was amazing because my wife was screaming. And so I was like, what, what is that? What's happening? Why are you so excited? Shh, you know, kids sleeping. Don't wake them up. Um, so they asked Aaron Rodgers. They said, you threw that ball, and what were you thinking? He said, I was only thinking one thing. Catch it. That's harpagmon, a thing to be grasped. You drop that ball, and everything is, is lost, right? Think about how this horde of fans are thinking, hold on to that thing. Catch it. Win, right? Now, imagine that you are the second person of the Trinity. 
This is not a heretical exercise here. You're allowed to think this for just a moment. And you are equal with God the Father. You possess all heavenly power. You can do anything. You've created everything. You are the center of the universe. And you consider that equality with your Father not something to be held on to. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Think about the things that we hold on to in our pride. Being right about something in an argument. Um, holding on to a hurt. Uh, believing or trying to save face in the, in the midst of a disagreement with somebody when perhaps maybe we, we should be a little bit more flexible. Uh, being unwilling to serve or care for someone because of something that they've done to us. Why? Because we're holding on to something. And yet, Jesus' character is such that he does not count equality with God something to be grasped. That's amazing humility. That he is willing to let go of his equality with God. He had everything. He had everything that human beings strive for. And what do they what do they strive for? They strive for pleasure, for money, for for security. They struggle for power. Jesus let all of that go. He emptied himself, it says, by, by taking on a, the form of a servant. That means not that he ceased to be the second person of the Godhead. He didn't cease to be God, but he added the form of a servant to himself, an earthly body. He laid aside his rights and prerogatives as God, and he came to earth in the form of a servant. Now, what is the form of a servant on earth? You know it. If you've ever walked into Target wearing khakis and a slightly red shirt, that's the form of a servant because people say things like, do you work here? And I don't know why. I look like I work at Target. People are like, are you a manager? No. Do I look like the manager at Target? They're like, yes. Yes, you do. Well, maybe I can help you find tissues or something. Um, yes, they're over there. You know. um, he took the form of a servant, a uniform. It says Joe, right? This is the audacious claim of what the Bible is teaching, is that God himself is humble and he serves. That he is not served by human hands, but that he must first serve us. The kings and rulers of the earth do not serve their people. I don't think you would be well received if you were to walk into the White House this morning and say, I need a sandwich. Make me one. Don't think that would go over very well. Not here in the United States. I don't think it would go over very well in the Kremlin. And I don't think you can ask Kim Jong-un to do your laundry. But think about it. 
It says here, though he existed in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He took flesh upon himself, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. He did everything that God required of him. Everything that God commanded him to do. Think about He taught people over and over again, and he dealt with their objections and their insults and their failures to understand what he was saying. He washed the feet of his disciples. Listen, this was not a group of people that were experiencing harmony and peace and unity. And out of the depths of his soul, Jesus was just like, we're having such a wonderful vacation moment. I'm going to do something amazing for my disciples. They were bickering and fighting and trying to figure out who was greatest among them. John and uh, James, I think it is, their mom came and said to Jesus, like, hey, would you do me a favor and make my sons the rulers? And the other guys are like, why didn't we think of sending our moms to Jesus? Like, the nerve of you guys. Jesus trying to teach them the greatest among them would be their servant. He takes off his outer robe and puts a towel around himself and he washes their feet. He does the the job of the lowliest servant in the house and he serves them. And listen, I don't think Jesus was like, I got to wash their nasty feet. All right, I guess I'll do that. I think he was like, this is the next thing to be done. This is the right thing and I'm going to do it. Because he wasn't attempting to live humbly. He was humble. And he was humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. The creator of the universe created the universe, created human beings, gave them minds to invent. And when they fall into sin, they devote and dedicate their mind to all manner of horrific, horrible, heinous invention. Think of the wickedness that's alive in the world. And some group of people said, we have an idea. We'll execute our enemies like this. We will put them on a a tea, a tree, and they will suffocate to death in pain in the sun as they asphyxiate slowly and bleed. And if they don't die quick enough, we'll break their knees. And then they'll suffocate instantly. It's a horrifying death. Embrace that kind of death. Because God the Father designed a salvation plan for sinful human beings that involves someone taking the punishment. Listen, they don't, this is not some kind of political trade-off where, where God the Father is like, I have an idea, I'll impute all the sins of everyone in the universe to you, and then I'll punish you. And then he's like, there we go. Let's just say that that covered it. No, it has to be a punishment, a real one. And so Jesus humbles himself and becomes obedient even to the point of death. He does what comes naturally to God, and that is to serve the needs of all of humanity. I think we could probably spend another 25 minutes just considering how different that is from every other 
claim that's out there in terms of the religion of the world. Christianity makes a radical truth claim, and that's that God must serve us if we are to be right. We need righteousness that comes from Christ in order to be right with God. We need our sins to be put on an innocent victim, an innocent sacrifice, not one who goes unwillingly. That's how forgiveness flows. That's the design of God, and it is an amazing thing that Jesus did this for us. So what's the application of this section of scripture? You might think that it is, okay, he did this for you, therefore be saved. And that is an application of scripture all the time. If you find yourself here this morning, you're like, I don't really know why I came here. You know, somebody invited me or I've always been kind of going to church, but this whole get right with God, like this is new. And you're thinking, I don't know that I've put my faith and trust in a savior. Then, then yes. You need a savior. Put your faith and trust in him and be saved. Know that Jesus is God. Know that you need his humility and service in order to remove your sins. You need to believe that he went to the cross, that you deserve to be punished for your sins because you're a lawbreaker, but that, that God has punished Jesus for you and that you can receive his righteousness and it is free. You can have it if you put your faith and trust in him. Be saved. That's not the point of the passage. Here it is an illustration. Here it is a point of the way that human beings who were called together in the church of Jesus Christ, it's a parable of how we are to behave towards one another. What is, what is God doing? What is he attempting to teach us in the incarnation? Uh, uh, tolerate a, a parable for a moment. A king loves a maiden, right? He, he loves her. How does he express his love for her in a way that's practical? Because there's a problem here. If, if he elevates her, if he says to this, to this young woman who is not his equal in glory and majesty, remember we're not talking about human beings here, this is an analogy of God and humans, okay? All human beings are equal, all right? Um, if, if he elevates her, she will not truly grasp the depths of his love. Instead, she, she will either spend all of her life thinking, I'm not worthy, I have no value, and therefore I must earn your affection, or if it goes sour, she will say, I am worthy of this kind of affection, and you are just another God, right? Those are the dangers when we look at God. Some people, uh, we, we tell them, God loves you, and they're like, of course he does, why wouldn't he? And other people are like, God could never love me, and they spend the rest of their entire life trying to earn what he freely gives them. So here is the king and the maiden. What does he do? He veils his glory. He 
disguises himself. He goes out into the village and he wins her love at her level, on the human plane. And then when he wins her heart, he unveils his glory and says, this is who I really am. This is what Jesus does for us. He comes to us in a uniform. He embraces the humiliation of making lunch, of washing feet. He goes to the cross because he's stooping down to our level to say, this is what I am like as God, but this is what humans are supposed to be like in their normal behavior because human beings are created in the image of God to reflect his glory, right? To display his attitude and his ways and his action in the world. Not to, not to figure out how to use force and strength and to impose the, the will of God on the world through violence and intimidation. Instead, what Jesus does is he transforms the world and wins the hearts of people through humility and love. He illustrates it for us. He stoops to speak to us, as John Calvin says, in a way that we can understand. He condescends to speak to us in our language, in baby talk. Because we look at God and we see intimidation and power and threat. But when we look at Jesus in the way that he lived and behaved, we see humility. And that is the true mind of God towards us. A true example of God. So look at then the demonstration of Christ. We see his exaltation, we see his humility, and then we see what it is that, that, that he is teaching us. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. He says... Have, sorry, not verse 1. Where is it? It's verse 5. There it is. I had to read through all the way through verses 1 to verse 5. He says this in verse 5. Have this mind among you. Have this in your church assembly and your fellowship. Have this in your community, in your family. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? We've been given it. We already possess it being in Christ, but we're to make sure we protect and defend and maintain and nourish it. Paul goes on to describe his humility and his exaltation. Have this mind among yourselves, who was, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What does the humble mind look like? God not only notices us where we are, loves us because of his virtue, not our own, humbles himself to the point of death by serving us. And he serves us in flesh, as a demonstration of his own love, as a demonstration of the depths to which he would stoop to love us and serve us, the griefs that he would stand to forgive, the humility that he willingly embraces. When we look at Jesus, we should see and have this aha moment of that is what the love of God looks like. But also, that's what the love and behavior of human beings should look like. That's how we were created 
to behave. That's how we were created to live. We tend to think of, of growth in the Christian life as climbing up a ladder, right? We're, we're, we're climbing this, uh, maybe there's a cultural analogy, stairway to heaven, right? You know, we're trying to get up there and, and, and to attain the, the power and the spirituality and the, and the strength and all the virtue of God. But the gifts of God are not attained by climbing higher. They're attained by growing lower. The example of Jesus is not one of power in the way that we would think. It's a way, it's, it's, it's power in keeping the self in check. As some have said, not thinking uh, less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Thinking of others more. The Christian life is not necessarily a ladder to climb up, but a ladder to climb down. Those who are greatest among you, Jesus says, are your servants. The one who serves is the greatest. The one who bears an indignity, who who does not lash out when hurt, but instead chooses to forgive. That one is not the chump and the weakling. That one is greater. So Paul points out a few things here. Maybe you resonate with them. I uh, titled this section originally, Ways in Which I Am Not Humble. Um, But I I, I changed it to Ways in Which We Are Not Humble, because I don't know that I want to be under the laser. Uh, Look at what, how we might not be humble. We might not regard others as equal to or more important than ourselves. Verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, Many times, you, you may, maybe you can identify with this, when someone is talking, we realize that we're not necessarily engaging and listening to what they're saying. Instead, we're thinking of what we're going to say next. Have you ever, ever had that happen? Where you're like, you're like, oh, and then I'll say, and then I'll say, oh no, wait, adjust that. I'll say this instead, right? Are you, are you listening to what they're saying? Like, are you in the moment engaging them, believing and acting like what they are saying is important? Are you counting their thoughts, their opinions as something valuable? Are you willing to tell stories that sometimes make other people look good rather than yourself? Because if what I'm trying to project to you is that I am the most important person in the universe, then I'm going to tell you stories that make me look good and make other people look not good, right? We can broadcast our lack of humility. Do you find yourself jealous when other people occupy the spotlight. The mind of Christ would say, regard others as more important. Second, one thing that we, or another thing that we do is we act out of selfish conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or uh, conceit. Selfish ambition or or conceit, self-importance, self-focus means that we're unable to admit that we're wrong. Right? We make conditional apologies. 
I'm sorry that you were offended, but you're so sensitive, right? That's not an apology. If you go on Wikipedia and look up non-apology apology, it's very instructive. There are a whole bunch of examples, and I'm like, oh, I've said that, I've said that, I've said that, I've said that. Apologizing to someone and saying, I'm sorry, and then pointing out their flaw or defect is the reason why the situation went wrong is thinking too highly of yourself. It's a sin to be proud and to hold on to sin. And so an apology, laying aside the self and trying to heal, says, I was wrong when I did this, period. End of sentence, stop talking. Not, but I was justified because. We demonstrate our lack of humility when we attribute our good behavior to our sterling character and our bad behavior to some other condition. I was tired, right? Well, why, why, but why were you so generous in this situation? Because I'm generous, right? We do that. A third way in which we're not humble is that we do not maintain the same love. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We kill love by holding on to hurt, by, by not surrendering judgments that we've made. My pastor used to say this, do not give yourself the right to be offended. That is gold as a principle for living life, it is incredibly difficult. Only by laying hold of the power of the Spirit and praying before the Lord and saying, make it so, and humbling ourselves and asking, does that kind of character come to pass? And it's not the kind of thing that lasts forever. It fades Develop short-term memory loss with regard to offense. By doing that, you add preserving power to the church. Now, you might say, you don't know what they did to me. That's true, I don't. You might say, you're right. But I just can't bring myself to. To which I say, Quarrel's not between you and I. Let's walk together towards the Lord and, and, and untangle this. This is what God calls us to. We're called to forgive one another in the church. We're called to humble ourselves and put aside our hurt, put aside our ambition, put aside our pride, and to live out the character of which God has shown us, which Jesus has shown us, character which embodies the gospel. So let me close by, by saying this. Uh, we're in the midst of a, of a new emphasis on community. We're going to have two small group trainings this week, uh, Tuesday, Thursday. There's, uh, they're on your Connect card. They're in the bulletin. I'm urging folks to come out to this because we want to we wanna build a a broad base of fellowship and connection and unity within our church by, by subgrouping, not clicking, not creating clubs, but just getting to know people in a deep way, building strong friendships. Those who lead out in community 
who lead out in humility within community are going to be on the vanguard. They're going to be the advanced people building this community. We need more and more and more to press in, to humble, to notice, to see, to care, to give up of them, themselves their own rights and prerogatives and say, how would the Lord Jesus have me serve others? Let's not regard ourselves as the center of the life of the church, as the one to be served, but instead to imitate Jesus' example. He said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's not act always saying, that offends me. That does, I think this, I think that. Instead, say, what would Christ have me do? Let's make sure that we look at the life of the church and say that the love and community of the church is something to be protected and defended and not played with, not easily sacrificed. And so let's close in prayer with this. The Lord Jesus is asking us to do what he did first. He walked this earth as a man. He was empowered by the same spirit that empowers you and I. He's asking us to join him on the path to community. Building community with humility and with love. Our ambitions ought to be God's ambitions. To reach those who need to hear the message of the gospel. To draw them into loving, caring community. And to teach them in the way in which they should walk. And then to say to them as we go, we're not any better than you. We're on the path too. We're following him. Embrace the character of Christ as we live out the mission of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to preach your word, to share, to be here. We pray that, that you would help us to see Jesus as the star of the story, not as a victim, but as one who chose his path, a path which was laid out by you. He walked that road by your empowerment. And we are called to follow him by your grace, for your glory, and for our joy. That's where joy is found. So, Father, I pray your grace on our church as we seek to, to build greater levels of connection and commitment, greater level of, of mission. May we remember that this is about reaching. This is about growing. This is about building and living out what you've called us to do. We pray that your grace would lead and guide us, Lord, in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.